Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Welcome to episode 108 of the Mike's Search for Meaning podcast, my friends. My guest today is Lalita Shri Ma. Lalita is a spiritual guide, a healer, and a monk who was connected to me by way of now really close friend of mine and past Mike's Search for Meaning guest, Jen Cody. And what I most adore about Lalita's work When I first connected with her, I was very thoroughly impressed with the totality of human experience that Lalita understands, is well-versed in, is trained in. She understands the human psyche, the human body, and is also really adept at connecting to the human experience through a spiritual lens, meaning what we might be guided by that isn't seen or tangible in the physical world, which we get a lot more into in the conversation. This conversation is very practical in a lot of ways too. We talk about things like breath work, embodiment practices. So if our past traumas come up, what it might feel like in our body, how we can be with it in our body in a way that is healing and that allows us to show up with more freedom and joy and peace in our lives. Nutrition is an element that we discuss in this conversation, movement, getting outside in nature. So it is both very practical and also engaging from a spiritual lens. I'm more and more coming to an understanding in my life that we need both of these things in harmony for life to feel fully complete. If we are not connected to, let's say, a purpose, a higher purpose or vision for our life, something that is just beyond the physical and tangible we're almost painting in black and white instead of really vibrant and bright color. And so a deep curiosity of mine in this conversation is to explore how Lalita helps her clients get more in touch with their spirituality. This has been a huge edge for me. The episode is full of wisdom, stories that will help you connect to Lalita as a person and probably to different stories in your own life. And there's also all sorts of the stuff that really gets me out of bed in the morning that I find really exciting, which is how do we create the life that we deeply dream of and aspire to? And how do we create a world where everyone can wake up with those same aspirations that all 9 billion of us or however many people on the planet could wake up and experience joy, freedom, and peace? That is the world that I want to inhabit. And Lolita has really deep insight into how this might be possible. So I'm going to let her take it from here. And actually, before we go there, I forgot to uh, plug the organization that I would like to raise awareness for. The organization that Lolita has selected is called Light Legacy. And every episode I donate to and raise awareness for an organization. So please join me in donating to Light Legacy. And additionally, if you would like to connect with Lolita further, Her website is lalitashrima.com. That is spelled out in the show notes as well. So with all of that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this 
deep and profound conversation with Lalita Shri Ma. All right, Lalita, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So a, a curiosity I have whenever someone is drinking something that's not water, <laughs> I, I usually start my conversation the same way, but I see you're drinking, it looks like maybe tea. And I love hearing what people's concoctions are, whether it's a you know cocktail of coffee or tea. So what are you showing up with right now? Warm water. <laughs> <laughs> Warm water in a fancy cup. Yes, yes. Exactly. Got it. I mean, it's so cute and comfortable. It is. More and I would, I would describe the uh, the environment of your room the same way, right? Cute and comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's co cozy. Like you, it seems like you intentionally set it up that way. But yeah, yeah. So, Lolita, the first question that I ask in almost every single interview, which I think could be a beautiful on ramp into who you are and how you've become the person that is you know, sitting in front of me today. The first question is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Ooh, wow. That's an interesting question. Well, so I grew up with a brother that was a year and a half older than me. And he and I were pretty close. And he, so usually it was always my mom and my brother and I, and my dad sometimes. And I would say usually dinner table was relatively harmonious. <clears throat> there was my brother was really off in his head a lot. Mm -hmm. So we got along really well, except when I would pester him for attention and then he would kind of lash out a little bit. But it was he and I, we were super harmonious and then no real rituals around dinner, but brown rice and vegetables and pretty healthy food. It wasn't harmonious often in our household, but I would say dinner time is mostly mm. like a good, healthy dinner with family. Mm. Yeah. And then when I was 15, my mom had twins and there's a whole story around that. And that I would say dinner time really changed after that. But for the first 15 years of my life. Mm. Yeah. How would you describe yourself as a child? And I'm also curious about how you would describe your spiritual orientation, if it was mm. even there at all. Yes, I always had a very strong spiritual orientation and it was very creative. So I would, I always went everywhere with colored pencils and paper. And my mom didn't really need babysitters because my brother Asa would always be reading and I would always be doing art. So she could carry me anywhere and just put me somewhere with my art supplies. And I remember just, I could sit for hours and I would do any kind of art or craft. I loved anything artistic. And for me, that was one aspect of my spiritual connection. I also felt very connected with nature and mm. just always felt in touch with the spirit world. I also could really sense things that weren't physical. And mm. sometimes that was very scary for me. I had some pretty scary experiences of non-physical beings. And sometimes it was very angelic and connected. So I was very spiritual oriented. And then when I was in high school, we 
were invited to do a senior project, and I chose to go to France by myself. It was the summer between junior and senior year of high school. And I remember, I'm surprised my mom actually let me go. She was very kind of gave us a lot of freedom, but I was, I turned 17 during that trip and I was traveling by myself through France. And all I wanted to do was find the cathedrals and sit and like listen to the music. And I didn't really know meditation then, but for me, it was meditation or going and finding nature spots and sitting and just communing with nature. Hmm. So all through my childhood, those are my memories of just being very committed to and yearning to be closer to spirit. Mm -hmm. When did it become your life right now is, is in my estimation, just devoted to your, yours and others and maybe even all beings as well-being, right? Mm -hmm. Spiritual well-being, emotional, mental well-being. I don't know if there's a moment in time necessarily, but when, do, if you think about it now, when, when did it become apparent to you that you wanted to devote your life to this? Mm, good question. Well, it was a journey. So I shared about kind of towards the end of high school where I was and my orientation towards spirituality. And so there's kind of the human aspect of that and the spiritual aspect, which are completely integrated, but have had unique parts of the journey for me. So when I was a senior in high school, I decided that I wanted more than anything to go visit the ashram of Satya Sai Baba, who is a spiritual master that lived in South India. He's passed away now. But I saved up all my babysitting money. And then after high school, I went to India and... I spent time with him. I also traveled through the Himalayas in Nepal. And I remember just all I wanted was to be in an ashram. All I wanted mm -hmm. was to be in an environment that everyone was completely committed to their spiritual path. And so I took a gap year after high school and I, I traveled to India, Nepal, other places. And I was really yearning for that, for the total immersion in a spiritual life. And then I went to a, my first year of college and the as soon as I came back from that, which I felt very out of place in, in the university, I didn't like the academics. I didn't really find home with the people there. And as soon as I got back, I met my current spiritual master, whose name is Her Holiness Saima. And that was really when everything truly began for me. I felt something very profound awaken inside of me where I remember walking into the room. It was at a hotel and a lot of the people were dressed in white, which is something that we do that represents purity. Mm. And I remember seeing the light in people's eyes and feeling an energy that I hadn't felt anywhere else. I felt very loved and very welcomed and I felt something nearly bubbling in my cells, very, very palpable. And as soon as Saima walked into the room, something really ignited inside of me. When mm. I was in India, I met Sai Baba. It was different. It was not necessarily higher, but it was so physically palpable. And 
it was like everything had just been lit up. So I kept coming and spending as much time with Saima as possible. I traveled around the world with her. I moved into her ashram in Crestone, Colorado, where I lived for four years. I was on her staff, so I worked very closely with her as an assistant for many years. So I've had a lot of time with Ma. We call her Ma. And in that journey, I've experienced states of consciousness that I didn't know were possible, where who I think I am as a human, where there's always some level of separation or suffering, it, it dissolves. And there's so much... Every spiritual teacher talks about oneness. Mm -hmm. And I really don't know another way to describe it. There's a oneness and there's everything is love. And all the stories in our mind are so not real. All the things <laughs> that make us suffer are not, they're not there. And there's this spiritual aspect that is so real. And then there's the human part of the journey, right? There's experiences of that. And I experienced that more and more consistently and more and more powerfully as I continue on my journey. And I've also experienced a very deep exploration of the human side of things. So hmm. I'm going to go back in time again. Please do. When I was a teenager, I mentioned that my mom had twins. So I was 15 and five weeks after they were born, one day I come home from school and our neighbor comes out and says that my parents are at the hospital with the twins. So something had happened with my baby sister and my brother and I, we drove to the hospital and we find out that she had had a brain hemorrhage. It was a spontaneous, sporadic bleeding in her brain. And when we get there, she's on a breathing machine. And I can see that she's left her body. She's not there. Which was a very intense image that is forever burned in my mind. Because she was so beautiful and so pure. And it was a corpse on a breathing machine. So it was very shocking. Mm -hmm. And social services is also there. And they start interviewing us because there's an infant death. They're concerned. They're asking us about our parents' behavior. They're interviewing my parents. And in the end, they take my little brother because they think that this was an intentional, intentionally caused death. And we leave the hospital without both babies, mm. which was beyond devastating and I had been I had come home every day from school and all I did was hold the babies it was, it's a lot for a mother I just have so much respect for all of you mothers and what it takes and then to have two that you're taking care of at the same time is a lot so I was very connected with both of them and we lost both of them in the same day, which was completely devastated my family. And I lost my whole support system. We did end up getting my little brother back. His name is Liam. So he was in a foster home for a few weeks. And then when the coroner report came out and showed that it was a natural death, 
we got him back, but he was very vacant and very traumatized. There's so much bonding that happens in the first weeks of life that when you separate an infant from a mother and a family, there's just a huge thing that happens in the nervous system and in, in the child. So he was already a very active child. He was, I held him all the time because he needed constant movement and attention. So in some ways I was most bonded with him. And so he came back and he was very fussy and very needy naturally because of the trauma. My mom was very depressed as you can imagine. And I think mm -hmm. part of her died in that experience. And in a way I lost my mom as I had had her after that moment. And my older brother got really depressed in his own way and was in a dark place. My dad was kind of here and there. So I didn't have really a support system and I was just trying to survive school. I was a teenager, I had social stuff going on. So for me, it was a huge trauma. Mm -hmm. And I, the things that saved me were my spiritual practices. And at that time I was going to sweat lodges every month. And that was a very important practice for me in the Native American tradition. I had my creative arts and I was, I started really dancing regularly. I was doing Middle Eastern dance and yoga and that kind of learning how to be in my body and how to move mm. what was happening through my body was very healing. And then once I got out of high school, I, the healing really started to happen in new ways. I had different experiences. I There's a woman here in Colorado named Melissa Michaels. She has a wonderful organization called Golden Bridge, and she does dance-based rites of passage. So I did a summer camp with her. It was five weeks long. It was the same summer that I met Saima. So I feel like that's when my life began was that summer. It was, <laughs> I turned 20 during that summer. And it was really learning about how trauma lives in the body and how to move trauma through the body and actually how to be in the body. I wasn't really in my body before that how to move emotion through the body. Mm -hmm. And so studying with Melissa, I started to learn more about trauma. I read Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger, and eventually I ended up doing the three-year training called Somatic Experiencing. And from there, I just kept doing trainings of how to work with trauma because when I read Waking the Tiger, something clicked for me. I'd experienced this huge trauma as a teenager. And then there's other trauma. My parents fought a lot. They didn't have a great relationship. There's, we all go through things as a child that imprint us and that trauma gets frozen in the body. And then we create belief systems also that live in our mind and they control our behavior as we get older. And if we don't address that, then we're acting out of a place of trauma and fear and limiting beliefs and adaptations instead of really responding to life. So mm. also Saima is, was a therapist before becoming a guru. So she has a very in-depth understanding of human psychology and kind of the Western internal sciences of, of health and mental health. So 
training with her was not only spiritual, but also very about changing who we are in our humanness. So over the last 20 years, it's been this journey of learning about what does it mean to heal as a human, heal our trauma and what really causes the suffering, and then how to embody and be in that spiritual aspect of ourselves that is so much beyond that. But I've seen mm -hmm. in my spiritual path how if people just focus on the spiritual and they don't address the human part, then it just pulls them right back down. They can have all these expansive experiences and then their beliefs and what's living in their body just pulls them right back into the same patterns. And if they just do therapy for 20 years and talk about the past, I'm not a big fan of talk therapy. I think there's a lot of really effective therapeutic modalities and there's a place for that, but we're just re reactivating the past and we're not actually creating, we're healing it and creating something new. So I've been, your original question <laughs> to come back to that is, I've been so deeply engaged in my own journey of healing and evolution. And along the way, I've, I've always, I mean, I just love people and I care so deeply mm -hmm. for people and learning how to get to a place where we feel more free and we feel more joyful. We can heal what's holding us in these places of suffering. How can I not share that? Mm -hmm. And the more that I, feel free, the more that I just will do anything to serve other people. Mm -hmm. And there's, that's what I live for really. So it's, yeah, it's been quite a journey. And the more and more that I work with people and the more that I see how to serve people in freeing up from those things, the more I want to do it because it's, what else is there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you said, you said something that's really simple and, and really profound in there. And, and that was you learned how to be in your body and that phrase right there in, from what I have seen in my own life and with others is very emblematic of a lot of people's healing journeys, learning how to be in our body. And learning about all like trauma, for example, learning about all the things that disrupt ease and, and inner freedom and peace in, in our body. So if I double click on learn how to be in my body, could you, could you paint a little bit of a picture, maybe from a ground level baseline? What did it look like? And yes, I'm hearing you had, there were movement practices and you were dancing and those are those are fundamental ways we can be in our body, but from uh, maybe from a trauma lens and, and since you've done somatic experiencing, when someone is looking, is saying, I am, I'm stuck and I'm, I'm in pursuit of healing, you know, something like that. And they might not have the words for, I want to learn how to be in my body, but you know that that's, that's kind of the, the game to play. What, is, what does it mean or how, how do you help support your, either yourself or others in, in doing that, in being in your body, inhabiting your, yourself? Great question. One very simple way is to be aware of 
the sensations in our body. Mm. So I invite you in this moment, everyone listening to actually scan your body from head to toe and notice what you feel. Notice if there's anywhere you're holding tension. As I do that, I notice there's a little tension in my shoulders. Right? Jaw for me, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, I, I can breathe a little deeper. And I notice my feet are a little bit chilly. Hmm. I notice a little tingling in my hands. I notice that I have a little itch on my face, right? It's very simple. There's sensations, our body is speaking in the language of sensations. And when some people get very dissociated, they can't feel any sensations. So sometimes it actually is a journey to learn how to feel sensation. And part of it is it's witnessing without making meaning of hmm. the sensations, right? And locating our attention here. When we're in our thoughts, it's out here. Most of the time, most of us are stuck in our heads, stuck mm -hmm. in our thoughts. So if you actually bring your attention here, that's a way to be present. And what happens in trauma is imagine that we'll use animals in it as an example, because we have the same nervous systems and the same functions in our brain as other mammals. We have the additional prefrontal cortex, which makes things a little bit more complicated actually, <laughs> but gives us so much more potential. So a lion chasing a deer. I live in the Rocky Mountains, so we have a lot of, we have both of those. So a lion starts chasing a deer and the deer, all of the survival instincts are mobilized. We call it fight, flight, freeze, right? The sympathetic nervous system, first of all, is mobilized and it starts running. So it's running and running for its life. The part of its brain for survival is turned on. And that's all that matters is that it gets away from the lion. If it gets away, what's gonna happen with animals, and you can see videos of this, is they'll start trembling. It's just this like, <laughs> their body starts this uncontrollable trembling. What it's doing is it's releasing all of the survival energy that was mobilized. And once that sequence is through, then it'll just start chewing on grass and like nothing happened. Mm. What happens to us is we thwart that response or we don't have the opportunity to express it because in a human trauma, we might be in a physical position where we can't, we're immobilized, we can't move our body. So we are physically frozen. Also, our bodies will go into a freeze as its first defense mechanism and then it'll go towards fight or flight. And when we, so when, when we're in a situation where there's a perceived life threat, it doesn't have to be a real life threat. It's a perceived life threat where our brain says this is life threatening and we come out of the situation and we're not, we're social beings. So if we're, we come out of that situation and we're not met with love and care, and we don't have the opportunity <clears throat> all of the survival energy, then it gets frozen in our nervous system and in our brain. And our body doesn't realize that the threat is in the past. It physically is living as if that same thing is happening right now. And the way that from the somatic experiencing lens, the way that that trauma is healed is that we 
get really present with the sensations, really present with what's happening in our body and we can feel the freeze. And by being present with it, the body starts to sequence it through. Mm-hmm. And so often in sessions, you'll see someone starts to shake and discharge or they'll start yawning and the parasympathetic nervous system comes on board and like something or they'll get really hot and start sweating all of a sudden. So there's a nervous system response when we can get really present. And when we have all that charge in our system, it's hard to be present because it's very uncomfortable. It can Mm -hmm. also cause dis-ease and manifest as other things in the body if it stays there over time. I've seen people that had sexual abuse as a child and then they have all these hip issues and they don't know why. And then the trauma work, the hip issues start to go away. Things like that where it manifests in the body. So we hold the, the cells hold everything. They, the cells hold the memory. So being present with it is really the answer to your question. And I'll bring in the perspective of meditation where I've been a, an avid meditator every day for the last 20 years. And there are different meditation practices. They're all about being present If we just focus on the body in meditation, we can get too stuck in the identification of the body. Mm-hmm. So there's a place to be present with the body, but not be identified with what we experience and to have a bigger perspective of who we are so that we can experience we have a wider capacity to be present actually. And what happens in trauma work is, imagine this is a trauma vortex I'm holding, for those of you listening, I'm holding my hands up. Imagine a a vortex, a circle, you you can say, if you, you can touch in and just to the outside of the vortex and release a little bit of charge from the nervous system and then move out towards a resource and then come back in and experience a little bit more of the trauma in the body. If you go to the center of the vortex, it's gonna overwhelm the system and you can get dissociated and it can be re-traumatizing. So it's very important, there's a word called titration, where Mm -hmm. you touch in and you experience enough and release enough that you can stay really present and you're like, oh yeah, that wasn't so bad. And then go towards the resource. And then next time you come back, there's less of a charge. Eventually you can go to the center of the vortex and there's hardly anything left. So it's being present with as much as you can be present with. If there's too much trauma in the body, some people can't be present with it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's about, and and the beauty of trauma work is that most, if not all trauma happens in isolation where there's not the connection and the support and the love that we need. Mm. And there's also too much charge to go in there on our own sometimes without getting flooded. So having someone that can be present with you and kind of guide you into the right amount and also be there as a loving presence, because a lot of us didn't have that in those moments of trauma. We didn't have a, a loving presence with us. So that in itself, can be very healing and very important in the journey. 
Yeah. And that that healing can happen with a partner, it can happen with a friend, and sometimes it needs to happen with a skilled practitioner that knows how to guide you in that. And we're not relying on our family and friends to do that. But just having those loving relationships in themselves can be the healing that's needed. Mm-hmm. So being in the body, yeah, just locating our attention here. Yes. Not out there. And sometimes that's a journey to be able to get there. And I'll, I'll say one more thing about that, which is physical pain. I, when I was two years old, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So I grew up with a lot of physical pain in my joints, which is part of the reason I wasn't really in my body very much because there was so much pain. Sometimes I couldn't walk, sometimes I couldn't move my elbow. And so I've also had to learn how to be present when there's pain and let it be a sensation and guide my body through that in a present way. And there's certain ways of reworking pain pathways in the brain, certain ways of guiding the body to reorganize itself and to not let the pain affect the emotional state, but to be able to be present with it while it's there. So I know that there's some of you listening that are gonna probably be experiencing physical pain. So I wanted to name that because it's it, it's a whole other thing to try and be present when it's so painful. There's so much in here. So I'm gonna maybe offer a couple of reflections and then we'll, we'll see where the question emerges. So for the better part of the last six years, I have had back pain, lower back pain, that has ranged from debilitating, can barely walk level, to low humming in the background. And in the traditional Western medical lens, I was diagnosed with a herniated disc, L5-S1, which is very common. And I mean, the last three to five years in particular, I've become more and more in touch with the mind-body connection and that uh, a lot of pain as it manifests in the body is, it's not just the physical pain that, it's not just a result of the injury that we think it was, right? Like it wasn't just from weightlifting. For me, that was that was the presenting challenge that happened. I, I was weightlifting and hurt my back. And I read a book called Healing Back Pain. And I don't know if you're familiar with it by John Sarno. Haven't read that book. Yeah. Well, it, it, the, the punchline of the book is that for a lot of conscientious, uh, over-response, hyper-responsible maybe would be a good way to put it, people who, who repress or people-pleaser maybe is another way of saying it, like the intersection of those things, and who repress emotions, repress anger, a lot of times the physical pain manifests in low back pain or neck pain or shoulder pain. And so one of the things I'm hearing in in your share here is that, yes, sometimes we get injured and uh, there's there isn't really a deeper story to tell about it. And if we are not connected to our emotional world, to our past, to our traumas, to our wounds, there are manifestations that or manifestations of pain that happen in the body and in the last six to eight months or so since i've read that book and have really more deeply internalized it i've had flare-ups but i've the gap from i cannot walk to i can work out to whatever intensity i want to is a few days 
which is miraculous if you think about it. The body is so when you're when you were describing and the way an animal moves a, a trauma through their body. I've never read the book, but it reminds me of the book "Zebras Don't Get Ulcers," and it's. It essentially is saying if you know, if you go through a, a, an experience and the and whatever energy is there is moved through the body, then it's going it's not going to have a lasting impact on on your body or your psyche, which is so fascinating to hear. And I don't think I've ever heard it actually said quite the way that you said it. That the nervous system of a human and of animals is 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 it essentially the same? Is it exactly the same? It sounds like it's re- basically the same. I'm not an expert in animal biology, but it's pretty, I think for this purposes, we can say it's pretty much the the same essential functions of there's fight, flight, freeze. We also have fawn, right? So mm-hmm. because our brain is bigger and has a lot of other parts to it, it's more complex, but the essential we could call them primitive survival functions are pretty much the same in my understanding. Mm. So I have two different questions and I'll I'll see, I'm going to plant one in my mind here is I want to eventually circle into how, what's the place of the mind in all of this? Mm -hmm. It's easy to, when we're talking about trauma and nervous system and, and our spiritual journeys, it's, it's easy to look at the mind as uh, I, I make up this story that it's easy to look at the mind as an enemy. And, and there's a saying that the mind is a terrible master, but a, a wonderful servant. And I, I would love to talk about that. I'm just planting the seed as, as something that we might get to that we, that we, we will get to that. I would love to get to after this question though. So it's very common to, I'll give context for myself and maybe the little bubble that I live in and grew up in. I grew up with two loving parents, very loving parents who were there for me, supported me. And there are, I experienced that I have had some traumas, very lowercase t. And a pitfall that I see a lot of times is that we compare the pain that we have to someone who had it worse than us, someone who's gone through sexual abuse, which is, of course, not to diminish or marginalize how brutal and terrible it is to go through. That is a totally different level of trauma, right? But I would be doing an incredible disservice to myself if I didn't look at my own pain, my own wounds. And, and maybe one specific example of that in my life, this, this happens over and over again. It's clearly an invitation for me to heal the wound and to be present to the pain. If my wife is on her phone for something that I tell this to make up the story or tell the story to myself is for too long or that we're, I feel disconnected. It's, it's very activating in me. Like I, I can feel something really strong in me if she's on her phone and there's, there's a few different memories, but I, I remember that I, there were multiple times I think where I, I wanted my parents' attention and they were doing the best they could, but I didn't get the attention that I wanted in that moment. And so I go back over and over and over again to give the the six year old, the eight year old, and me what he needed, right? Like, what is what is love, unconditional loving presence for him look like? So that if my wife is on her phone, it's not something that like triggers me right into fight, flight, freeze. 
all of this is a long-winded way of saying for people who come to you and say, you know, I've had a good life. I don't really have that much trauma, but are getting really activated by certain things. What would you, where would you go with said person? Great question. I have like four other points that came up, things that we <laughs> from that one question, but I'm going to start there. So, I mean, there's so many ways to work with that, but I think the basic understanding that we all have buttons that are going to get pushed and the person that's triggering us did not install those buttons. (laughs) (laughs) I think if we all really own that, everybody's relationships would be better. That if there's something in me that's getting activated, it's because there's something in me to work with. Otherwise we would feel neutral about it. It doesn't mean if the other person's behavior isn't acceptable that it's that we just let it be okay, but we don't get emotionally triggered by it. Mm-hmm. So you you said that more or less. And I just want to reiterate that it's the first part is acknowledging, oh, wow, something's getting activated in me and there's something in me to work with. Mm-hmm. So then how do we work with that? Yeah. I, I appreciate the framework of looking at that we have a wounded child and an adaptive child. And this is a distinction. Most therapeutic models talk about working with the inner child. There's a man named Terry Real who started the Relational Life Therapy Institute, I think is what it's called. And he, he talks about the distinction of the wounded child and the adaptive child, which I really love because we have this aspect of us that didn't get what he or she needed as a child. Our for whatever reason, either our parents were really abusive or they were just, they would yell at us sometimes or they were a little neglectful or we just needed something and they were busy. We all have this part of us that was hurt as a child and didn't get their needs met. And as an adult, most of us let that child run the show. And when we don't feel like we're getting what we need from our partner or whoever, we throw a temper tantrum. And for us, that's the adaptation is some of us disappear. We shut down and we just go away. Some of us run. Some of us start fighting. But we have some kind of reaction to it. And it is not anyone else's job to heal your wounded child. We are the only people that can do that. So the first thing is really acknowledging, okay, we don't always need to go back into the past, but I think it's really helpful to just know where does this come from? Because then it mm-hmm. helps us differentiate the adult from the child. An adult can get left, but the child may have been abandoned. So let me ask you this, when your wife is on the phone and you feel that way, how old do you feel? If you think back to your mm. childhood, how old did you feel when you felt that way with parents, maybe? I'm getting like six to eight years old. Yeah. So take a moment, even without going through a big process, just take a moment with that six-year-old. And what does he need? Yeah, he needed to be seen. He, he wanted, yeah. he's worthy of attention, it's, is what he wants to hear. 
Yeah. So t- you can take a moment and just give him that attention. You can have a dialogue with him. You can give him a hug. Just imagine spending a moment with him and really giving him what he needed that he didn't get from an adult, which you are capable of giving now as an adult in the way that you would to your child. Mm -hmm. And then you can welcome that child into your heart, into your body present moment. And that's important because we're really, these parts of us get left behind and trauma is where part of us really gets fragmented. It's not brought into the present moment. So when we really give attention to these parts and we bring them all the way into our current day self, then they can be reintegrated. Mm-hmm. So the wounded child just wants to sit on our lap for a hundred million years and be loved. That's all the wounded child wants. The adaptive child learns that I need to throw a temper tantrum to get love. I need to get sick to be loved. Mm. I, if I shut up and go away, then it'll all be okay. Mom will stop, stop yelling. Or it can be that either this behavior, no one stopped it. Children need to be disciplined, right? So they might do something and no parent does anything about it and they just carry that into adulthood. Or they learn from a parent how to shut down or yell. That's another adaptation. So there's behaviors that we learn from a hurt place and the the adaptive child develops to protect the wounded child. And that part of us, we need to be a little bit firm with. So if your wife is on the phone and you were to start yelling at her and asking for her attention, which I'm assuming you don't do, then (laughs) there would be a moment of saying, sitting your adaptive child down and saying, I got this. Like, I don't need you to do this anymore. In fact, you're not allowed to. You can't Mm -hmm. yell at my wife and... I have new ways of handling this. So you can just be a kid. You're good. Or for me, I learned to shut down and go away, which Mm -hmm. worked really well when there was yelling in the house. There wasn't really a way to feel heard, but it worked when I just went away and then things would calm down and I could, it was, it was okay after that. So now in my adult relationships, what feels safe to me is to shut down and withdraw. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have to be, I have to really not allow that adaptive child part of myself to do that. Right? I say, look, I have new tools now. I know how to actually communicate in a way that's going to get through. And these people want to hear what I have to say. And they're available to hear it because I have mature adult relationships. I mean, we still get triggered and act like children. Everyone does. I don't know anyone that doesn't have moments of that. But we can come back and say, look, I apologize that I shut down or I was a crying mess and I spoke, I misspoke or, mm-hmm. you know, the other person can apologize for yelling or whatever, right? And then we can have an adult conversation. But we can't do that if we allow the adaptive child to behave on our behalf. And those behaviors always feel safer. So we mm-hmm. really have to be firm and say, I'm not going to do that thing. So that's a conceptual part of that. If I was working with someone, I would go into deeper levels of tuning into where the hurt is and working at a deeper level of healing 
where where it happened originally. And sometimes that's with working with the parents. Sometimes it's working with a belief that we created in the moment that we didn't get what we wanted or needed. <clears throat> so there's deeper levels of reprogramming the subconscious mind and releasing the original wound of that. But that framework, I think, is really important for all of us to understand and be able to work with ourselves and really take ownership and be an adult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we all took the time just, just to do that every time that we felt like we were defaulting to a reactive pattern, that, that already would, I, I, I make up would cause a lot of shifts to happen and yeah. much more available presence connection, which is what, you know, I, I think that's basically, if you, if you cut down to it, that's what a lot of us are, are really looking for in our lives. Yeah. I just want to add one more thing, yeah. which is that it is, it's deep, deeply working with the roots in one moment can heal and shift a lot so that we no longer have the same kind of reactions. And then there's also constantly repatterning ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because we have these very strong pathways. We have the subconscious beliefs and the subconscious is responding to things before our conscious mind even knows what's happening. So our reactions come from the subconscious. They come from the brain and the body. They do not come from our reasonable mind. So we have to work at the subconscious level and with our, when it comes up over and over again, the most common thing I hear is, why am I still experiencing this? Why am I still doing this? So don't beat yourself up, anybody. Just be like, oh, there's that pattern again. Okay, let me choose differently. And you constantly change your mind, change your body, change your physiology and choose a different way. And eventually the brain will be like, oh, got it. Okay, this is way, way better. The brain wants to do what's healthiest. It just do, does what's familiar. So if we want a healthy familiar, we have to do something consistently to create that. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things. One is you said, initially when I asked the question, you, you said it seemed like you were writing some things down to, to check some threads. You said it brought up like four other things. Is there, is there anything else of those four that you want to add? Yeah. You mentioned comparing our trauma with someone else's. Yes. I think that's really important because trauma is not in the event. It's in the way the event lives inside of us, it, in our body and in our psyche. And a lot of that has to do with our resilience. So this exact same thing could happen to two different people and it could be a devastating trauma for one person and a blip for someone else. Part of that has to do with the level of resilience that's formed in very early childhood. So our very early childhood experiences create our level of resilience in certain ways. And also how much support we have coming out of that event. So say someone gets mugged and then they go home to their parents who are just like, well, get over it. Or they're off doing drugs or something. That's gonna be a thousand percent different than being greeted by a loving family that is holding them and embracing them and helping them move through whatever's there. Like that, it can be resolved. So it's about how it lives in us and we can build our level of resilience no matter what 
how we start off. We can build our level of resilience. That's the whole game. So that no matter what happens to us, we don't need to be traumatized. We don't need to be traumatized by hard events. Hmm. So, and the other thing is that suffering is suffering. That's just it. Like we all suffer. We all experience hard things. And it's really, I don't think we can ever judge ourselves or someone else for, oh, you have this good life. You have all this money. You have all this whatever. Mm -hmm. We don't know what someone else is going through or has gone through. So we can never compare our challenges to someone else. And we can only take responsibility for what we need to work with. And we all have places that can be worked on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now I want to get back to the question that I teed up about the mind, because the mind is, <laughs> it's something that I see as I have begun my more intentional spiritual journey. And as I've investigated other people who are on a, a spiritual path, the mind gets bastardized in, in a lot of ways, right? Like it, it gets cast as an enemy or something that interferes with peace a lot of times. So I know that you have studied not just spirituality and emotions, but you studied the mind very closely as well. And there was an interesting, you, know, you, you said that the brain wants that the brain basically defaults to whatever's most familiar, but ultimately wants what's, what's healthiest, which I, I don't think I've ever heard it phrased exactly that way before. So if you could just talk about the, how you view the mind and its place in healing. Yeah. Love this topic. Thank you very much for asking this question. My, I would say my deepest study of the mind is in my own meditation practice. And when you sit and do nothing, you're going to have to confront your mind. (laughs) (laughs) And most people, especially in the West, spend so much time just distracting themselves with mostly with technology, but there's very few moments of actually sitting and being present and being still with the mind. And I think the mind is an amazing tool. The mind is capable of so much and we just haven't trained it. It's like if you get a puppy, you don't train the puppy, it's going to be jumping all over you and chewing up all of your stuff and you train a puppy and it can do amazing things. So I think a lot of people do make the mind wrong and I understand why sometimes I get really sick of my mind, (laughs) but it's such an amazing tool and it has so much capacity. So there's different aspects of the mind And one thing is just to not believe everything it says. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, if we all stop believing everything that our mind says, it'll go a long way because we get caught in stories and just loop them. And I think if we're going to talk about the mind, we need to talk about emotions because they're very connected. And what I observe happening is we have a thought and that thought can trigger an emotion or experience in the body. The the nervous system doesn't know the difference between a really clear imagination and 
something that's really happening in our life. So our body responds to our mind. And I think the one of the easiest examples of this is with sexuality. If we have a sexual thought, we're going to feel a sensation in our body, most people, mm-hmm. right? I think most adults have experienced that. So it's the same if we're having a thought about my partner isn't paying attention to me or whatever, and then we feel all of this emotion and this whole experience. And what can happen is if a situation in any way looks like something we experienced as a child that had a strong emotional imprint, we have this librarian in our brain that's going to pull out all the library books that match that similar story. So then we have a flood of familiar a familiar emotional experience and all of these events in our life to back up a certain belief. So it's very complex. There's all of this. And, and the reason that, that it, the brain is designed that way is because it wants to protect us from making a mistake or it wants to save our lives, basically. It all comes back to survival. It wants to make sure that we don't repeat what happened in the past that didn't go well. So when we have a very strong emotional experience, the, that's the one, those are the ones that get very deeply imprinted. So we have a thought about something that <clears throat> has an emotional experience. That emotional experience reinforces the thought and then we loop and we re we keep recreating the emotional experience with the thought. It goes both ways too. We can have an emotion and then our brain is like, oh, this feels like the time I got abandoned. And it starts thinking about when we got abandoned or I'm stressed out about what I have, what this thing for work that's in the future and starts creating panic because the nervous system thinks it's happening now and we're going to die if we don't do that thing really well. So part of it is coming back to the body and saying, oh, here's the experience I'm having in my body. Okay. Mm -hmm. I feel tense. I feel like electricity is moving through me. Mm. And so I find that one of the most helpful way to work with the mind is actually to be very aware of what's happening in the body and the emotional state and actually kind of separate them in how we're looking at them and never believe the stories that are creating the emotional experience. And we tend to believe them because they feel so real. But have you ever been to a movie and cried? Yeah, it's the same thing. It's a movie that is creating an emotion in the body that's not the reality. So working with the mind is a lot of saying, okay, there's a thought and it's just a thought. It's like a cloud passing through the sky. But I know that the clouds, if you're in an airplane and you drive through the clouds, you can't see the cloud anymore. It's just mist. So if you really know that the thoughts aren't reality, and I can't stress that enough because most people just believe their thoughts and they get so identified with their thoughts and their beliefs. And as soon as you let a thought be a cloud and really let it pass by, And that's kind of the core of mindfulness and meditation. But the reason it's so hard is because it triggers all of this emotion and it can trigger all of this old stuff. So 
my philosophy around meditation isn't just pure mindfulness. It's also, okay, something's being stirred up for me. Let me feel it in my body. Sometimes it needs deeper work and to release it. And sometimes it's a matter of just going all the way to the sun and like really knowing how to palpably experience our higher nature. And then the, the mind, the thoughts, the stories, you're like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Like, I can't even pretend to believe that anymore. But the, the most important part is not identifying with the thoughts and understanding that it's going to trigger an experience and feeling that experience and letting it pass. If we feel it in the body, 100%, welcome the emotion, welcome the sensation, that will pass within seconds. There's one study that showed that anger moves through the body in 90 seconds. Yep. If you keep thinking about what you're angry about, it's going to last weeks. <laughs> if you let the thought go and experience the anger in the body, it will move through in 90 seconds. Yeah. So that's part of it. The whole other aspect of it is understanding how to create actively with our mind. Yes, I wanted to talk about, we, we've done a lot of excavation of what, what informs the way that we currently see our reality based on the conditioning and the experiences we've had in the past and our wounds. And yeah, I would love to get into, well, what is the world that we, or the life that we want to be in, that we want to inhabit, that we want to create, right? So uh, choosing our reality, which for me has been, it continues sometimes to be really disorienting and hard. Uh, but anyway, I would love to hear you speak about that. Yeah. I'll, I'll start back with a thread from the mind because for me, that's where it really starts. Mm -hmm. We are transmitters of frequency. Our brain is transmitting frequency 24 seven. And so is everyone else's. And I think many people have heard of the law of attraction. And when we talk about a law, it's like the law of gravity. You can't change the fact that if you walk off a roof, you're going to fall. You can't change the fact that when you put out a frequency, that same frequency is going to come back. And it's going to collect all the other same frequencies from around this plane and bring them back. So if we relate to ourselves as a transmitter of frequency, our thoughts are what direct and create the, our thoughts and our emotions are what create that frequency. So if we are thinking about all of the horrible stuff that's happened to us or the horrible things that we're afraid are going to happen to us, we're transmitting a low frequency. If we think about what we really want and how we want to, and we're feeling the way that we want to feel, that's what we're going to attract. So it's up to us to raise our frequency raise the frequency of our thoughts and our emotions and our whole energy. So 
a big focus of mine every day, every moment of my life is what am I thinking and feeling? And to really get to the place I want to be with my thinking and feeling, sometimes I have to free up some of what keeps me in the lower frequency, which is, that's why we do the trauma work or the excavating of the old, because that'll, that can just bring us right back down to the lower frequency. But if we just do that, we're never focusing on what we really want to create. Mm -hmm. So it's a process of very actively saying, okay, what do I want? What do I want in my finances? What do I want in my career and my contribution? What do I want in my health? What do I want in my spiritual life? What do I want in my creative world? What experiences do I want to have? And we literally can have anything that we want. We can create anything. And that might feel like a stretch, but it's true. We can create anything and we are creating. If you look around at everything you have, it's a reflection, a reflection of your beliefs and your thoughts and your emotions. You are creating what you <clears throat> think you can have. So there's constantly stretching and getting creative with our thoughts. And I love children. I've worked a lot with children. And one thing I love about them is how imaginative they are. They have no boundaries on what's possible. And we just learn over our lifetime that things aren't possible, but it's not even true. So a lot of it's getting rid of conditioning and our, imag our imaginations start to atrophy and we forget to how to actually use our mind to its potential. So I'm always trying to create new thoughts. I've heard a statistic like 90% of 90 something percent of our thoughts are the same every day. Yes. I mean, how boring is that? <laughs> <laughs> most of them aren't even cool. Like they suck. They make us look <laughs> shitty. <laughs> I mean, mine do sometimes. Same. Like, I want to serve more people. I don't want to think about the time I was hurt four years ago about blah, blah, blah. I want to feel amazing in my body. I want to spend time in nature. I want to mm -hmm. have... When we really have the thought... Let's, let's pick something concrete. I want to make an extra $100,000 next year. Yeah. Okay. Is that true for you? Sure. And I'll, I'll get into more about why my answer sure. Yeah. <laughs> and not absolutely. Uh. Money for me is like, money for money's sake is kind of like, well, why? Mm -hmm. So if you ask me if I want to have extra hundred thousands, I'm like, yeah, that'd be nice. If you ask me what I want to use that for, I can get really excited. Mm -hmm. And when we want to manifest something, the ingredients are desire. <clears throat> so burning desire for something, it's like trans, it turns up the volume of our frequency, the frequency that we're putting out. So if I put out I want an extra $100,000 next year, my frequency is gonna be pretty weak. Mm -hmm. And so I'm gonna get back a weak response. If I put out, 
I want to serve more people. I feel something like happen inside of me. Something comes to life. I want to live in a place where there's more nature, something Mm -hmm. really, or I want to spend more time with my spiritual master and that I will do anything for because of how much evolution I experience in those moments. Or I want to do certain things for my health. I would use $100,000 to do certain treatments for my health. Mm-hmm. That is exciting for me. And that, that frequency is going to be a lot bigger than $100,000. So we're taught smart goals, but I've learned another philosophy that I think is a lot more effective, which is, Get clear on what you want, and it doesn't have to be specific or measurable or time-bound. <laughs> but if you transmit it with clarity and consistency and power, with burning desire, and here's the other ingredient, total faith that we can mm-hmm. manifest it. Because if we're, if we're putting out a counter-frequency, so I've got two balls here. One is red and one is yellow. <clears throat> The red one is what I want. So I'm putting out this frequency of what I want. But then the yellow one is, but I don't think that's really possible. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've never been able to do it in the past. It's not really practical. Then I'm putting out a counter frequency and that's what I'm getting back. I'm getting back the lack. So we have to have 100% faith that we can have it. So desire and belief and consistency and feeling like we already have it, we can have anything, literally. And so that's how we use our minds to create. So I'm not a big proponent of people just working on themselves all the time, quote unquote, like constantly digging into the past because then you're just going to be thinking about the things you don't want to be. But if you want to create a new pattern or a new program, design it in your mind. What do you want to believe about yourself? What do you want to have in your life? And create that with vivid imagination and create the feeling like you already have it and then expect it to come. And you don't need to know how it's going to come because we can imagine, again, I'm holding up my hands into a little circle. We can imagine this many ways to get what we want and life has everything outside of that circle available. And my my brain can transmit, I want to be on a podcast and I could start stressing about how am I going to find a podcast? I don't want to do PR. That sounds horrible. That's never going to happen. I might as well forget about it. Or I could put out, hmm, I'd like to be on a podcast. And then Mike's brain picks that up and contacts Jen and Jen mentions me and Mike reaches out to me and I'm like, hey, cool, I got a podcast. I could never could have imagined that. Mm -hmm. Right. So my mantra when I start to think too much about how am I going to make something happen is I can't wait to find out how this is going to come into my life. (laughs) (laughs) I love that mantra. Yeah. So there's creating what we want with our mind. And there's, I'm very active in creating the state of my body with learn from Saima is actually visualizing light in my cells. Mm. And that's a very 
powerful practice for me because the cells are listening and the body knows how to heal. When we imagine the body being in its perfect original state, the cells can actually shift. There are many stories of people completely healing their body with their mind. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I just imagine fun things that make me feel good instead of watching a movie to exercise my imagination. So there's so many ways to use our mind. And we have to use it proactively and choose our thoughts instead of letting our thoughts choose us, choose us because our thoughts that choose us are from old programs we got from our parents and our upbringing that aren't helpful for us. Mm-hmm. So that's the world of using our mind. And the mind is amazing and can help us create anything. Mm-hmm. Mm. I wanted to check in with you on practices that you have that support you creating the life that you want. And there's, I imagine meditation is part of it, being in nature, visual visualization, which you could couple with meditation, right? And like really allowing yourself to paint in vivid detail what it is that you want, right? So are there daily practices? I think this is for, for anyone who's tuned in. A lot of times the ideas strike something in us and then the mind can go, well, how do I, how do I make this a reality right now? So I would love to just go through some, some practices that, that you walk through in your own life that, that make these visions that you have come into fruition. Yeah. Great question. Practices are so important. And I see in my practice with people, people that have a daily practice, transform really quickly and -hmm. people that don't don't (laughs) (laughs) and i mean it's just the way it is we we must have daily practices if we really want to shift part of that is because of doing anything every day establishes a certain level of discipline and we must have discipline to shift our patterns and our thoughts and our state So the Mm -hmm. act of just having a practice in itself creates something. And then there are certain practices that I find particularly beneficial. So I'll start with the meditation aspect. And then I want to get into the really just healthy body lifestyle parts, which we haven't talked about. Beautiful. For me, that is absolutely vital. I wake up early every morning and I meditate for an hour. And for me, I I know that doesn't feel realistic for a lot of people. I think you might be surprised if you tried that you could actually do it if you learn what to do during that hour. For me, that time is, there's so much, there's chaos that happens. I'm a very busy person and life is very stimulating. And when I sit and be with what is, it, it helps me to kind of distinguish and stop identifying with any of it and let any of it move through my system. Mm. I think a stillness practice is more important than ever with how overstimulating and busy people are in our, in our modern society. We just weren't designed this way. Mm-hmm. We were designed to live in a world where we would go hunting and then sit by the campfire and stare at the fire for hours or just sit there and look at a tree or have a intimate conversation. 
But instead, we're on our devices all the time, and then we're in traffic, and then we're in fluorescent lights, and mm-hmm. we must take time to still our systems. Our nervous systems get so overactivated. So taking moments of stillness, and if that, even if that is five minutes to just sit and be present, okay, what's happening in my body? What's happening in my mind? How am I feeling? Look around. Let the system calm down. Or if it's kind of numb, then it might need to wake up. Mm. It might be a little frozen or dissociated and it needs some life, but you don't know it because you're too busy and not actually checked in. So one thing is just being present and allowing whatever's there to resolve itself. Like I said, the body knows exactly how to come back to equilibrium. That is how it's designed. So if we can be present with it, it will do that naturally. And part of that is letting the thoughts pass. Mm -hmm. And sometimes my practice looks different on different days. If I feel triggered, if I had a conversation that I feel upset about, let's say, I might not be able to just sit and be present with it. Sometimes I use tapping as a tool. That's a very powerful tool for me because, again, it releases what's frozen and what's stuck in the body and moves the emotion through the body. And I can just name, like, I feel this, I believe Mm -hmm. this. For those of you that are listening, I'm just tapping on specific acupuncture meridian points on my body and... There are many great resources for tapping next week and this tomorrow, actually. I'm going to be leading every month. I lead a free session called Elevate Live, and I'll be doing a tapping practice on that as part of a bigger conversation about how to work with triggers. So that'll be on my website available for anyone that wants to see it. There are also experts in tapping that. So that's one tool to if I have something really emotional that I need to work with. I do a lot of work with visualization. So I'll bring light into my body. I might visualize something that I'm creating in my life, like the actual outcome of it, or I might imagine myself as a, a, a different character to create kind of how I wanna feel and a, a different aspect of myself. I might, yeah, there's so, I'll, sometimes I'll play with my mind. My core practice is just deepening into stillness. Mm-hmm. I do breath work. So there's a lot of different kinds of kinds of pranayama that activate or relax the system in different ways. I'm a huge fan of breath work. Again, that's something I'll, I'll do a lot of in my monthly groups and tons <laughs> of resources online. I'm sure you could find millions of breath work videos on YouTube. Definitely. And I do a lot of mantras. This is all within a seated practice. So a mantra is a set of syllables, usually from an ancient language, where the language itself carries a vibration, like Sanskrit. And these are used to activate a certain quality within us, as well as to focus the mind. So I'll just have a, a mantra internally that I can come back to. And a point of focus, I like to focus between my eyebrows or my crown, and just The mind needs somewhere to go. So I'll use a mantra and a point of focus to just bring it back. Just bring Mm -hmm. it back. Just bring it back. And then my whole system settles. So that's a meditation practice. That's kind of 
the way that I work within my meditation practice, any meditation practice is going to have benefits. Mm-hmm. They, it, they change the brain. There was one study of Tibetan monks where they hooked them up to an EEG machine. They had electrodes all over their head and they asked the monks to just be normal, right? And they measured the brain waves. And then they asked the monks to focus on compassion and do their meditation. And what they saw is that it absolutely lit up the part of the brain that's associated with happiness in the prefrontal Mm. cortex, the part of our brain that's associated with higher reasoning. And one particular monk, there's a specific part in the frontal lobe that is associated with happiness. It was so lit up in that part of his brain that they thought he must be the happiest person in the world. And this happened from them focusing their attention over years and years and thousands and thousands of hours. So they had actually trained their mind to do something very specific, like I was speaking about earlier. It's a mental training. And they had a control group where they basically asked them to do the same thing. They were hooked up, just doing their thing. And then they asked them to focus on something and nothing changed in their brain. Mm. They couldn't, they couldn't focus. Mm-hmm. So it completely changes our brain. It helps us focus. It helps us feel more peaceful, less anxious, high, all the levels of higher functioning. So I am a huge, huge fan of meditation. I, I always do a movement practice in the morning. And for me, that looks like unstructured yoga. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll dance, but a lot of times, I mean, I've been a very rigorous yoga practitioner since I was a teenager. And that's been a daily practice for me forever. I've studied very intensively and my body has very unique needs because of my joints. So for me, it's about tuning into my body and finding, okay, what needs to move? What do I need to kind of move through my system so I can be here and have my body be open and available for the day. And I always, so those are kind of my core, I would say presencing spiritual practices. In addition to like a weekend, I'll go and just sit for several hours in nature. Nature is very important to me. I think we should all spend time in nature because it's, We actually remember how to get still and feel connected. Mm -hmm. And yeah, before I go into all the other lifestyle stuff, is there anything you want to go for it? Okay. No, I was going to, I was going to prompt you to keep going with that. And and then I do want to, on the back end, get back into your spiritual orientation and specifically your affiliation with Sai Ma and Mm -hmm. There's a, a couple of curiosities I have there, but let's let's go to the more practices first. Great. So a healthy lifestyle is not only important to have a healthy body, but it is the foundation for our inner state. We must have proper nutrition and not fill our bodies with trash if we don't want to feel like shit. It, I can't even stress enough how much food affects how we feel. Sugar. I mean, I'll never forget my little brother's, I think it was his sixth birthday party. 
I was sitting on the lawn and he was super into biking. So it was a bike birthday party. All these six-year-olds riding up and down the street. They were having a blast. Cake time happens and my mom had baked a healthy, relatively healthy homemade birthday cake and ice cream. So they, they eat the cake and ice cream and all of a sudden kids are falling off their bike. They're hitting each other. They're screaming. They're crying. They're breaking down. And I just started laughing because I was like, this, this happens to adults too. They're just oblivious to it or they don't, you know, like they crash. Mm -hmm. And we throw temper tantrums, but we don't know it's about if it's about the food. Mm -hmm. So most people, especially in the U.S., eat trash. And we are designed to eat foods that grow from the earth. So if you want to feel better, start with your diet. I mean, just hands down, drink a lot of water, eat vegetables and whole foods. Just don't even bother with all the packaged stuff. I'm a vegetarian, but I respect people that aren't. Every body is different, so I'm not going to prescribe a diet, <clears throat> but I can tell you, if you eat clean food, your mental health and your energy level will be a million percent better. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I eat very healthy and I cook all my own meals. And then there's exercise. We are not designed to be in front of a computer all the time. If you want to feel better, go exercise and ideally do it outside where you can get sunshine and fresh air. I love riding my bike every day. That is just and it's the form that works better for my body, especially because of the arthritis that I've had in my knees forever is I need I need to cycle and not walk. So we get endorphins, which make us feel amazing. We move our lymphatic system which cleans out all the toxins. It's a very important part of our immune system. We get our heart pumping. We get oxygen in our lungs. It brings oxygen and blood to our brain. Drink water, eat healthy, exercise. And it doesn't need to be like a hardcore, super long gym thing. Just move your body. And then, so those are core for me. Mm -hmm. Diet and exercise. Having a really good night of sleep. There are a lot of ways. If you turn your technology off in enough time to let your brain realize that it's nighttime, blue light is going to totally mess with your the, the factories in your brain that tell you that it's time to go to sleep, your melatonin. So no blue light. Turn off your devices. Turn off all the extra stimulation. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing them on for a second. <laughs> yeah, like glasses. I wear them too. These are my nighttime bad boys, but keep going. Yeah. A regular bedtime. I, I can tell you with clients, we can do all this deep inner work, but the thing that just changes their life is they start going to bed the same time every night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and having a morning routine. I am telling you, it is a game changer. Turn off the TV, turn off the video games, turn off your cell phone and decide what time you want to go to bed and go to bed consistently and your body clock will start to adjust and you'll be able to sleep much deeper. If you have a hard time sleeping because your nervous system is really activated, then it might be good to do more meditation or do some deeper work with your nervous system. 
And yeah, so a good night's sleep. I love going to bed early and waking up super early. And then I can have a very rich morning routine that I'm not stressed about what I what I have to do yet because it's no one's bothering me. Actually, people are bothering me because everyone I communicate with is around the world. So I start getting texts. <laughs> but I don't need to respond to them. So, but the world's not awake. The world's very, very still. And, and I know I have enough time to do a full enriching routine so that I feel really balanced by the time I start my work day. And then I take breaks and move my body. I go for a bike ride at some point during the day get sunshine and fresh air. And all of that creates a certain level of balance and just overall feeling of health where I feel good in my body, feel good in my mind. I'm not overreactive because I've settled everything. So I would say my routine is absolutely the foundation for feeling awesome consistently. And mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge that I've chosen a life to not have kids. And it's not as you can't be as predictable when you have kids. And there's always ways to build in five minutes and do it yes. consistently. There's always a way to create a healthy step in your life, no matter what your life looks like. I've never met mm -hmm. anyone that can't make a movement forward in that domain. So, yeah. I can attest to the, it's, it's different with a child. As I've alluded to, I have a 12-week-old son at the time of this recording. And even in the toughest of days where sleep is unpredictable and we're waking up a few times a night, there are always five minutes for me to meditate or go for a walk outside or really basic practices like that. And I have found that having that strong foundation has been immensely helpful for when all the, all the chaos happens, right? If, if the foundation's there, then I, I already have built in, I've grooved in the neural pathways of this is important to me and it will get done one way or another. It may not be exactly the way that I thought it would happen before having children, but it's, it's possible. And yeah, I'm just, I'm really appreciating this, the, the breadth of your work in this conversation, Lolita, that you seem to have a fundamental holistic understanding of all of the things that impact our well-being. And I've dabbled, I, I don't know if I shared this with you in our intro call that my coaching certification is from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. And so I studied holistic health counseling. And I've seen, you know, the word integration is, is one that I pay a lot of attention to these days. And I've seen lots of people in the nutrition space just talk about nutrition and sleep. And there's even biohacking and not a lot of attention paid to trauma and therapeutic modalities and understanding of your past and where your beliefs are programmed. And I see a lot of people in, in that camp who study trauma and study healing and, and human behavior who don't really talk a lot about holistic health and don't talk about nutrition, don't talk about how important it is to get a good night's sleep. I love that you said, of all the things that we've spoken about, all of which are so important, that it reminds me of, of Stutz, the documentary, if, you, if you've if you ever heard of it, the, the therapist who, who basically said, 
if you're feeling depressed, let's start eating well and, and get a good night of sleep mm-hmm. and may, maybe, you know, relate, X, move your body for sure. Mm-hmm. And you find a couple of people you connect well with and that that, <laughs> that does most of the work before we even start going into, your, you know, your your programming and your, your wounds. So yeah. I, I love that you brought that in. Yeah, I so appreciate you highlighting and summarizing that. And I am a huge believer in both that you can create the state of your body with your mind and your emotions. You can create your mind and emotions with the state of your body. They, you cannot yes. separate them. You just can't separate them. So we have to tend to both. And there's, there's one more thing I want to mention, which is we are living in a world where there's a lot of toxicity. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get an overburden of toxicity in our body. And that's one thing that can cause autoimmune conditions or a lot of different what we call diseases. And also can really affect our mental and emotional health. We can feel very depressed and do everything. And turns out we have mold toxicity mm-hmm. or Lyme or mm-hmm. some pathogen that's just taken over our body and if we clear that out then all of a sudden we feel like ourselves again mm-hmm. so i also want to name that as another area to look at in <laughs> talking about holistic yes really check what what's in your body when you clean out your body and your body is able to clean itself out you will notice that your brain feels clearer you just feel happier so just another area to Keep in mind, as we are human beings, mm-hmm. in a in a holistic way of looking at that. So, if we bring this conversation full circle, if you're listening, I'm doing a circle with my hand. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see that. I so something that I think is prevalent, especially in Western society, you could do all of these things, right? Take care of your body, sleep well, do your healing work, do all of the things we've spoken about at length in this conversation. And I think the, the lock stone that brings all of this together is having a rich spiritual life mm-hmm. in terms of being well. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of your spiritual life, I mean, you've described yourself as someone who is spiritually oriented your whole life, but a lot of your energy is with Saima and, and her community. And there's in our intro call, there was, you said something along the lines of she can just sense if I am, if I'm not a hundred percent on my game, she can sense it in me. And I get, I just get the sense that you probably have a million stories that you could tell about ways that you've been impacted or, or that you've seen Saima in, in her ultimate power. Uh, affect someone and I believe in the power of of stories so I would love to if if there's anything that comes to mind in your 20 or so years being part of that community what comes up for you yeah so much (laughs) (laughs) I'm is a very unique so I've I've met many spiritual masters and I really am eternally grateful for these beings that are here just to serve and uplift humanity. And 
I think there's a myth that they, when people are enlightened, they no longer have a personality or something. Mm -hmm. It's not true. Every master <laughs> I've met is very, very different in the way that they work and in the way that they act. And I'll just, for people that aren't as familiar with what it, a spiritual master is, it, my experience and understanding of it is it's really someone that has broken through into total liberation from human suffering, where they can be in bliss all the time. They are not at all affected by what we've talked about at the beginning of the call, which is the, the trauma and the mind and the emotions. They, they know that they are a spiritual being in a human body. And that's all that they know. That's all that they experience is that spiritual nature. And being, working very closely with Saima, I see very distinctly how, I mean, we can't even compare how we operate and how a master operates. It's just a different operating system. And so Saima has a very distinct personality, we could say, if we want to even use that word for a master, because everything is different. But she has a gift of being able to read energy and very accurately. So she can see everything that's happening in the physical body down to the minute cellular level, like x-ray vision kind of is how I perceive it. Mm -hmm. She can see everything that's happening in the mental, emotional, everything that's happened in our past, past lives, past, like she can look into a situation and see the whole thing. So I, one program that Saima did for many years was called the Journey of Profound Healing. And this program, Ma really works with the roots of our suffering. And for, for many years, I was with Ma before she started this program. And we would all come to the programs, get super high, go back and kind of go back into our old state. And once she started doing this, something really started to shift. So when I first did this program, I was living in Creststone, Colorado at the, the ashram. And I'd be making breakfast and I would watch the people come in. This was before I did my journey. I'd watch the people come in through the ashram. And the first day they looked miserable. The second day they looked even more miserable. The third day they started to look super bright. And the, you know, as the days would progress, then by the end they were just completely different and so free and so light. So I knew that something different was happening here. And when I did my journey, what I learned, and I was completely oblivious to this, and she brought my awareness, is that I was really dead. Mm. Like, I had no life force in my body, and I was carrying death with me. In the, in the journey, which now she's trained a, a small group of us to lead this program, but we use props, and one of the props is a skull. It's made of styrofoam, but it, it looks like... It, it holds the energy of death. And we didn't have props at the very beginning, but that would have been my prop is that, and I think that comes from when I was 
a teenager and my sister died and there was just this deadness in the house and this death energy that I had carried into adulthood and I couldn't fully live. So this energy got totally cleared out of me. And then I remember the, the week after I'd be talking to my best friend and she would be like, you're, I'm right here. You're talking really loud. <laughs> like you can <laughs> lower your voice a little bit. And that before that I had been very soft spoken and I, I still am at times, but it's like all of a sudden I was alive for the first time in my life and talk about learning to be in the body. It was truly a coming alive. So there's, I tell that story to illuminate the quality of energetic work of really working with our, Ma calls it Kaka. She's, she's French. And in Kaka, Kaka means shit in French. <laughs> we carry all this Kaka with us. And once we clear it up, we're free of that. And the Kaka originates from really from our parents and the roots of that. So there's the energetic work. And then there's another moment I'll share. <clears throat> I was staffing the Journeys of Profound Healing as Ma's assistant. And I was in my, I don't know, maybe my late 20s. And I had, I was on the second round of this. We would be three in a row. We were in the second set. So I'd go live in a hotel for three weeks, do three, three journeys of profound healing in a row. And I'm walking down the hall with Ma and she says to me, you know, I don't know if you can do this job. I need someone that can, I can ask to call a lawyer or any professional. And I know that they're gonna sound like an adult and be professional. And you turn into a little girl. Mm. And I, I don't think that's gonna work for me. So I'll give you one more opportunity and we'll, we'll see. It was a very loving conversation, but it was very direct. So the person managing her organization at the time set me up with a coach and I spoke with her. I had, a, oh, I think 10 days in between that set of journeys and the next one. And I spoke with her every day for those 10 days. And my task was to completely transform my personality because <laughs> I had these very insecure, disempowered parts of my personality and I wasn't fully mature and grown up yet. Not that I am now, but <laughs> less mature then. So I, and I really took it on. I was like, game on. I don't want this part of me to be running the show anymore. And I learned how to really shift into being more of an adult in a professional way. And I showed up and I was successful. I stayed in that role until Ma stopped doing the Journeys of Profound Healing a few years later. So I tell that story to show that Ma works with every part of our human development professionally and personally. Ma has worked with my physical body for healing. And then there's the higher spiritual experiences. So I'm going to tell one more story. Please. I, so I was always, I think as soon as I met Ma, I knew that I wanted to become a Brahmacharini, which is a nun in the Vedic tradition. I always thought I would have kids because I love kids so much. And, <clears throat> but I also 
yearned to live in an ashram, which is a monastic community. And when I met her and I saw that she had a monastic order, I just felt such a deep calling inside of me and such a deep resonance. And I, I kind of knew that was my path. It took many years until I took the initiation, but I knew that that was, I was made for it. And she told me that at some point also, like, it's just in the fabric of my being. Mm. So, and I, I knew that there's nothing more than I wanted to just devote my life to my spiritual path and to service. I mean, really, there's nothing else that is interesting to me. So I, I lived in the ashram for several years. Then she, quote unquote, sent me out into the world <laughs> to have more experiences. I just I needed more experiences. And then she invited me to work for her. So I was still very work, interacting with her very closely. <clears throat> and at some point during that journey, I, I was initiated as a Brahmacharini. And then in 2019, we were at our monastic order, and right now there's nine of us who are initiated, so it's small. There's a We have a huge community all over the world, but there's a small monastic community. We were, Saima invited us to receive the initiation of Mahamandaleshwar, which is a big word, and it's a title in, in the Indian tradition, it is a title that one receives that's really an, an acknowledgement of being a spiritual leader. And it's, it's really a big honor. This is a, a very ancient culture. It's a sadhu society. So this, it's an organized society of mostly men that have dedicated their lives to spirituality. And our lineage is 2,700 years old. And Saima was the first woman in our lineage to receive the title of Mahamandaleshwar. And then the highest title is Jagat Guru. And she was the first woman to ever receive that title. And it was a huge thing for a woman in such a society of men to be acknowledged so highly. And then she wanted to initiate us as Mohammed Leshwar, which I was like, are you crazy? Like, I am not <laughs> anywhere close to a saint. I don't think I deserve this. This culture is familiar to me. I mean, I didn't say no because it is such a huge honor and so unique for Westerners to receive this, this title. And the way that Maha described it is that we, it's a huge spiritual initiation where we receive the lineage of all these different masters, and then we carry that. So I had a kind of an internal fight going on leading up to this, and it was gonna take place at the Kumbh Mela, which is the largest spiritual gathering in the world. There are, I think there was something like 70 million people that came to the last one. Wow. And it is massive. You can see it from outer space, from a satellite and it's basically a bunch of tents built on the sand by the sacred rivers and then millions of people come and they're just chanting every day and praying and meditating it is a huge spiritual vortex so it's very 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 powerful 
And you get to all of the saints and sadhus come out of their hidey holes from all over India and some all over the world and come for spiritual practice for weeks. So it is an experience of a lifetime. And the mythological story is that there was a battle between the demons and the gods for this nectar of immortality. And Vishnu came, I'm very much abbreviating this story, but basically Vishnu took the pot of Kum, which is the nectar of immortality, and he was flying around the world being chased by the demons who wanted it, and four drops fell on the earth. And where those four drops fell is where the Kumbamela happens. So the, the story goes that if we bathe in the rivers, during these sacred times, which are planned astrologically, that we can achieve liberation, that all of our past karma or past imprints is washed away. So it's a very powerful cleansing and we, we get to bathe in the nectar of immortality because that's when it's active. Mm. So the Kumamela is organized around these bathing days where there's a big procession of all the gurus are on their chariots and everyone bathes in the river on those days. So anyway, we were going to potentially receive this initiation at the last Kumamela which took, that we were at, which took place in 2019. And I was kind of secretly praying that it wouldn't happen <laughs> mm -hmm. because I, one, I just didn't feel like I really deserved it in some ways that I just wasn't at the level mm. that, that I had earned that title. Also because it's a society that I love and respect and it's foreign to me and, and it's men, it's almost all men. So it's really something to be, especially a Western woman in the middle of it's literally a sea of men. Mm -hmm. I mean, beautiful men, but still it's, it's something. And, and a lot of, there's still very much a inequality in that culture with men and women, which Saima is massively breaking through and changing. She's always been really about women's empower, empowerment. So we arrive at the Kumamela and we have students coming from all over the world. I am just in heaven being in this environment, being with Saima, being with our community, doing our spiritual practice. It's just a sea. I mean, it's there's noise all the time. It's rustic, but it is so spiritually enriching. And there are conversations happening in the Sadhu society of, are we going to initiate these nine Westerners as Mahamadaleshwar? And some people were very happy with it. Some people were, that are more traditional were very unhappy with it because it's breaking a lot of concepts of this very ancient society. And meanwhile, Saima is preparing us and she has us ask a couple of individuals to be our assistants because she said we wouldn't be able to function at all after the initiation. And so it was finalized. There was a date for it. And I don't remember if it was the day before or two days before Ma brings us to the river, the river Ganga, which is a, considered a goddess in the Hindu tradition. And so we're all standing with Ma and Ma initiates us 
before the big public initiation. And so Ma pours water over our head, places her hands on our heads, and pours this very high, high energy into each one of us. And I feel this experience of union and so much light. And I can feel something in my consciousness really shifting. And very precious moment also. So just to be with my brothers and sisters and be with mine that way. We come back and already I feel like I, I had a big role with all of the students taking care of everybody. And I, I couldn't really do it very well anymore because I was so in another state that I, the practicalities, it's like what I've experienced many times when I get into these states is my mind is like a colander where you pour water into it and it just mm -hmm. goes right out. So I can't hold on to a thought for more than a few seconds. And it's, so I'm kind of in this state and I can feel something energetically really shifting inside of me. Something very new is happening. And then the day of the initiation, we get, we have special robes that we wear and we walk into the hall in a line and we're seated on kind of a mattress on the floor. And then behind us is one more mattress, another level up. So we're seated on the lower mattress and in front of us is countless sadhus, men sitting there, and then several gurus that are the, the leaders of different lineages within the sadhu society. And for the initiation, each one of them came up and placed their finger on the point between our eyebrows, which is considered a very powerful spiritual center connected with the pineal gland, which is the center of awakening in the brain. And so they, they place their finger there and then they place a garland over us. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I can experience the power of all of the downloads. And Saima had spoken about how we receive the lineage. And this is, these are lineages of master to disciple, master to disciple for many generations. And these are the successors of these physical lineages of masters. So there's all of these masters and all of that is being poured into me. And like, it's so much bigger than my physical vehicle and who I know myself to be as a human being and as a personality. And this initiation is for us to serve. It's not, and what, what I really experienced and got is that this has nothing to do with me. This is, my vehicle is being expanded for the higher consciousness to pour through me. Mm. And so the, the following days, I definitely experienced myself in a state, a very expanded state. And I'm really glad I had my assistance because <laughs> it's true. I was not, I was not functioning like I could before and be super dialed in mentally and practically. So then for the Snan days, we're up on these chariots with the rest of the gurus, and which I had dreaded. I can tell you, I was like, I do not want to be sitting on a silver throne looking down at all these people. Like, I want to be standing with the people. Mm -hmm. I, but I could feel 
that so we we would pass through like thousands and thousands and thousands of people that had come to see the procession and that had come to bathe and i could feel that as i would we would throw flowers at them and as i would throw a flower i could feel light coming through me and i had always experienced light especially since i met my it really had a very palpable tangible relationship with this higher spiritual energy but there was it was new and it was more and it was like something was coming through me and showering everyone and the blessings mm. were coming through in a in a new way and so it was for sure one of the most life-changing experiences and i've experienced myself very differently since then i have there was a big integration period where it didn't feel anchored. It's like a sprout had been planted in me and I had to water it with my spiritual practice. And when I would be with other people, I would feel it ignited because this energy wasn't for me, it was for the world. Mm. And I wasn't teaching that much at the time because I was in a very administrative role, but there was the, the, the gap between when I experienced my human, my low human patterns and my high spiritual states was much bigger. Mm -hmm. And over time, I felt like that got integrated where I could access those spiritual states much more consistently and also learn how to work with the human part of me much more effectively so that it didn't take over quite as much or just I would, I didn't have to flip between them. It's more like I became that. And then the human part, I'm not enlightened, but I ex experience that energy every day. And I know how to work with the human part of me to let it kind of set aside so that the spiritual part is much bigger and much more encompassing of how I experience myself and my life. Hmm. And so Saima gave us this. I think nine of us being initiated changed something significant in that culture. It also, I've always experienced that Saima asks me to do and be more than I think I'm capable of. I could give you 10 more examples of where she, I step into a role that I'm like, I am so not capable of this. And then I rise into being, becoming the person mm -hmm. that is capable of it. So mm -hmm. she's always stretched me in every aspect. And she lives with such a high spiritual vibration that being with her always brings me into that. And she was able to bring us into a whole new level of our consciousness, which I've experienced many times, but this is a very unique and special moment of of that in my life. Mm. Well, Lalita, it's been a joyous and expansive two hours with you. This this feels like a, a good note to end on here. Is is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today that feels important to bring into the conversation as we close here? We covered a lot of territory and <laughs> I think I want all of you listeners to 
Always remember to be gentle with yourself. And know that there's always a way through suffering and to not believe the stories in your head. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And the more that we connect with our higher nature and become less identified with our, the human part, the mind and the emotions, that is freedom. And there's a lot of, I totally honor every pathway to that. I really believe that every spiritual tradition, every path of transformation is a pathway towards awakening and self-realization. And so whatever path you're in, I honor that and I invite you to just be in it fully. Mm -hmm. Well, Lolita, I don't know if what you shared about putting manifesting being on a podcast was true or if it was just an example, but I'll say I'm, I'm really grateful. If that is true, I'm grateful that you manifested this conversation. I am really grateful that uh, Jen connected us and I, I don't, have you made a podcast appearance before? I haven't. So it was yeah. a, a real privilege to be your first podcast conversation. I know that you're very familiar with giving talks and, and speaking in front of audiences, but it's, I just am in love with this platform. I think it's one of the, the, the best ways to get to know, I get like how to human is an, is an alternate title to this show. I, it's, it's the actual title to a different podcast, but uh, I find that these, these explorations where we're free to meander and tell stories and really go at, at any length that we want to allows us to arrive at really deep and profound insights. And a lot of what you shared invites me into more, a deeper connection with all of who I am. And I imagine we'll do the same for the listener. And I really love your wish at the end to be gentle. Don't believe all the stories that we tell ourselves. And man, everyone's going to be leaving this conversation with lots of really practical takeaways for how you can connect more deeply with, with who you are and, and really show up well. Being well is something that really matters to me and that it's, it's accessible to as many people as possible. So. Thank you for, for bringing all of that to the table in this conversation today. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you so much. It's really been a joy. So for everyone who's listening, well, let me start with watchers. If you are watching on YouTube and you're not a subscriber, please hit the subscribe button. And if you are listening, sending you lots of love, have a good rest of your day or evening and take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.